Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're going to read in two Gospels today. Luke chapter 22, and then we'll go over to John chapter 18. beginning to read at verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And over at John chapter 18 beginning to read at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that as we look into it, that our hearts might be touched with your grace, and Father, that uh, the responses of our hearts would be glory and honor and praise being given to you. We pray for your anointing, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, with the load of um, work that Presbytery dumped on me this week and uh, next week, I pulled out a sermon that I did quite a number of years ago, kind of reworked it, but I think it's a sermon that uh, you will find a blessing, even if you have heard it or at least heard most of it. I think it'll be an encouragement uh, to you. And the question is, why do all four Gospels record this story about the ear of Malchus? I think it's uh, more important than some people uh, make it out to be. And I'm sure that that night, there were at least some people who were asking, did you see the ear of Malchus? And uh, the crowd had witnessed that ear being lopped off by Peter's sword. They saw Jesus touch his ear, and a new ear grew uh, where the old one had been missing. 
And uh, so you got something weird. You got a, a guy with three ears. You got two on his head, one on the ground. And the question is, why? Why did Jesus do this? And I believe that that ear was a powerful witness to God. It was a sign that was pointing unmistakably to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was, that God was authenticating Jesus as the Messiah. Now, if you remember from the Acts series, you see that miracles had uh, a number of sign features to them. They were signs of the apostles, which means that they were authenticating the fact that the apostles who were who they said they were, messengers of Jesus. Uh, they were signs of Jesus himself. They were signs of believers in Mark chapter, the last chapter of Mark. And sometimes they were just signs of God's good favor resting uh, upon people. But it's not just miracles that can be signs that point to something. Uh, Romans 1 verse 20 says that all of creation points to God. It acts like a sign. It is declaring His eternal power and Godhead, His wisdom, His love, His wrath. Uh, when I uh, go, went to the uh, Grand Canyon, I just stood in awe at the wrath of God that was displayed in the flood. I think that's what it is. It's one giant sign that is uh, telling people, our God is a God who judges sin, and if you do not repent of your sin, you too will likely face that kind of a judgment. And God strews those signs or those testimonies into every person's life. The ears of Malchus are everywhere, and part of the purpose of this sermon is to help you to recognize uh, those signs, take advantage of them in your witness, in your working with people. And I, I, hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll get the point of where we're going on this. Caiaphas, the high priest, had been gunning for Jesus for a long, long time, all the way back to John chapter 5. He was trying to kill, uh, kill him. He had always claimed that Jesus uh, was a false prophet. He was not who he uh, claimed to be. And if you turn with me to John chapter 11, you'll get a little bit of a, a feel for the fear that he had. Now, Jesus had just finished... Uh, an astounding miracle. He had raised Lazarus from the dead, a man who was so dead, he was decomposing. People said he stank already uh, from decomposing. And let's start reading at uh, verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? I want you to notice, first of all, that they're not denying the fact that there are miracles that have been performed uh, by Jesus. In fact, it's precisely because of those miracles that they feel so threatened. Verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So it was a little bit their job security that they were worried about. If we leave Jesus alone, the status quo is going to be turned upside down. We can't control uh, the crowds if we do not deal with Jesus. So they know they've got a problem. But Caiaphas is fairly confident he knows how to deal with it. Verse 49, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied 
that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Without even realizing it, God was speaking through him. Uh, just like God could take a donkey and speak to Balaam, God can take an unbeliever like this Caiaphas and speak prophetically through him, which again shows God is totally in control of what's going on. Verse 53, Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So dealing with Jesus is part uh, of the way that they're going to solve this uh, problem, but that wasn't enough. They had to get rid of the evidence that Jesus was not right, or that he was right, okay? Lazarus was still telling everyone about this incredible miracle. He, Lazarus himself was like a giant blinking neon sign that was saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, okay? They cannot have that. So take a look at John chapter 12 and verses 9 through 11. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So they had a two-part plan. They had to, first of all, get rid of Jesus, but secondly, they had to get rid of, uh, 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 of Lazarus. Let's kill Lazarus, let's turn off the blinking neon sign is what they were doing. Now, it looked like their first part of the plan was going fairly well. They had trapped Jesus. Uh, Caiaphas had uh, managed to uh, talk Judas into betraying uh, Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's pretty cheap. And the trap was set, and it now looked like Jesus was shortly going to be history. But I want you to go forward now to chapter 18, and I want you to notice how Peter completely ruined Caiaphas's day. Uh, take a look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So have you seen the ear of Malchus? And people who were there would say, yeah, it was on the ground, and there's blood pouring out of Malchus's uh, head and all over his clothing. He's probably got his hand to the side of his head trying to staunch the, uh, the flow of uh, blood. And Jesus, after asking permission, which is kind of strange that they gave it, but after asking permission, which must have been given, he touches his head and he is healed. And every one of them was a witness to this miracle. It was Passover, which means it was a bright moon. Uh, the light was shining brightly, lighting everything up. And with that as a background, I think you can see that this healing actually was a very, very significant event. John does not just call Malchus a servant 
of the high priest. He was the servant of the high priest. He was his personal valet. He was the one who worked with Caiaphas every day as a messenger and as a person who managed his household and in various ways uh, 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 served him on a daily basis. He was indispensable to his day-to-day work. Now consider what happened when Malchus got home that evening. Uh, the servants are probably whispering among themselves, man, did you see what happened to Malchus's ear? And that was going to be a question that would haunt Caiaphas for the rest of his life, perhaps drive him crazy. And I think it was the first thing that they were probably talking about. I just imagine as he's coming home that uh, Caiaphas asks them, okay, did you uh, accomplish the task? Yes, Jesus was arrested. He's in the He's in the prison awaiting uh, your judgment. And he says, did it, everything go all right? And they said, oh, yeah, everything went all right. We had a little bit of trouble, but uh, uh, it's all okay now. And he says, what do you mean it's all okay? I see blood all over Malchus's uh, garments. Uh, what went on? And they're kind of nervously looking at each other. And he says, well, one of the disciples of Jesus cut my ear off. He said, what are you talking about? You got both ears. You're lying to me. And the servants say, no, he's not lying. We watched him get his ear cut off, and then Jesus touched his ear, and it got healed. And uh, so this is something that is just flabbergasting them, and they servants are probably wondering if they really should have arrested Jesus. Maybe even Caiaphas might have wondered if this was a good idea. And yet it's amazing what greed, being power-hungry, Uh, what uh, uh, various sins in our lives will do to make us willfully stay in some sin and not repent. Pride itself will many times keep us from repentance. And so for the remainder of Malchus's life, that ear remained a silent testimony to the fact that Caiaphas had rejected the Messiah, the, 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 the only Savior from sin, and from hell. Every time he saw that ear, he was reminded of his sin and of his rebellion. Now, God has placed many similar silent witnesses to the truths of Scripture all over this city. They are the ears of Malchus. And when you pray for a loved one who is not a Christian, you can pray that these testimonies that God has providentially placed into their lives would have an impact, that they would not be able to ignore that testimony. Malchus was not able to ignore that testimony. I think that's the reason why we know his name. Uh, Luke does not mention his name, but the Gospel of John was written considerably later. And I think it's a hint that this man is no longer nameless. This is a man who has become converted and come into the church. Now, I cannot prove it, but I think it's a strong hint that John is saying, hey, if anybody wants to check out this story, it's Malchus. Just go talk to him, and he will confirm the story that I have just told you. Now, let me give you some illustrations of the ears of Malchus, both miraculous and non-miraculous. A man and a woman are in a hotel uh, thinking of committing adultery, and the man glances over to the bedside stand, and he sees a Gideon's Bible, and he's convicted and he leaves. This has happened actually more than once. He saw on that Gideon's table a testimony to his sin and of God's judgment uh, in his life. And uh, when you are driving around the city or you're prayer walking and you happen to walk past hotels, you can be praying, Lord, 
I know that this hotel has Gideon's Bibles, and I pray that you would spare Christians from falling into sin or that you would lead unbelievers to a saving knowledge of you through that silent testimony. Or consider the atheistic uh, professor at UNO who could care less, at least so far, about Jesus and his claims upon his life, and yet he cannot get away from Jesus because he teaches Western English literature. And English literature is just full of references uh, to the Bible. By the way, this is one of the fantastic ways of being a missionary in closed countries like China and other places. There are teachers uh, in some of these uh, countries that have been asked to come there, teach English literature, and of course you can't teach English literature without showing what's the background. What are these allusions to And you're preaching the gospel as you talk about redemptive analogies and as you talk about Christ figures in those novels and as you show them various biblical references. These are the ears of Malchus that even unbelievers cannot get away from. Or consider how impossible it is to totally keep Christ out of Christmas. People are trying. But you walk into a store and you hear the Christmas music playing and, and some of them have the gospel in them. Or you go downtown and you hear Handel's Messiah uh, being played and actually being sung by unbelievers. It shocks me that some of these guys can sing these words and not believe uh, anything that is in them. And yet, uh, these kinds of, of testimonies, the specials, the Christmas cards and things that are sent out, many times they are a witness that can uh, uh, lead people to Christ. Or consider the money in your pocket that proclaims, in God we trust. I know more than one person who was led to consider the claims of Christ because of that phrase. It's a strange place to, to find a message from God, you know, because we're such an idolatrous nation. And yet they have begun to consider, why is that phrase on there? And to begin to study. Uh, you yourself may be a Malchus to your neighbors, uh, as they consider your life and as they say, well, he claims to be a Christian, let's see if his life is any different than the life of uh, the others that are around us. And as your life reflects the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a silent testimony to God's claim upon them, because they can see the reality of the Holy Spirit within you. So even though you know, some people will never come into church and hear the message. The message can go out there and we can pray, Lord, take these silent testimonies to you and bring conviction into people's lives. It may be a drive through a cemetery reading the tombstones. Uh, certainly God has written the law, His law, upon every human heart. And we've already seen that the whole creation is a sign. It, it's speaking about God's power and purpose, His love and His wrath, His holiness and His mercy. People cannot get away from these silent testimonies that God has put in place. And we can bank on that knowledge when we are praying for people or when we are witnessing to people. We don't really have to actually convince them that God exists. Apologetics is a part of that process, but they already know God exists. Romans 1 says that they know He exists. It says that they're trying to suppress that knowledge but when God brings them to a vulnerable place through His providence, many times there's a spark that happens through that silent testimony and they are open to hearing the gospel from your lips. They may deny that there are any absolutes. But let me tell you something. When their daughter gets raped or they get 
robbed, all of a sudden they have moral outrage despite the fact that they are fighting against the only basis for any moral outrage. Okay, it's utterly inconsistent for them to do that, uh, just as it is inconsistent for Malchus to allow the one whom he is going to be putting to death to heal him. I mean, what's with that? Yes, please do heal me. It is inconsistent for these people to be morally outraged when they are fighting against the very God who is the basis for all moral absolutes. Now, we can sympathize with them. We can say, of course, you should be morally outraged because uh, it, it, it is a law of God that is being violated. But to be consistent with your moral outrage, you really need to believe in God. You really need to have a consistency in your worldview. God has written the law in your heart. You cannot get away from it. But again, these are all points by which we can, we can draw people uh, to the Lord. And um, Francis Schaeffer uh, did this with the philosopher Cage, who believed in total, random, meaningless chance. Uh, he was a, not only a philosopher, but a musician, if you can call his music, music. Um, some of his uh, music, he would just arbitrarily, randomly put notes together, and it sounded like cacophony. It uh, sounded awful. Uh, but he was not consistent in his life because he was a mushroom collector, and he would eat those mushrooms that he collected. And he knew that when it came to mushrooms, there was no such thing as chance. Poisonous mushrooms were always poisonous, and edible mushrooms were never poisonous. And he ate them. And Francis Shaver was able to show, look, when you're eating mushrooms, you have to borrow from the Christian worldview. You would not be able to survive if you lived consistently with your worldview uh, of chance. It's just like Malchus, who was borrowing a healing from Christ while arresting Christ. And people live in these tensions, these inconsistencies, and apologetics, which I encourage you to study, uh, Greg Bonson and some of these other books, takes advantage of these vulnerabilities and helps people to see more clearly the claims of Christ upon their lives. So that's point number one. Be aware of the ears of Melchus, which are everywhere, and get used to using them when you're witnessing to a Melchus. Now, in the remaining points, I would like to show six ways in which this miracle was also a testimony to the nature of Christ's mercy and why it was that he came to earth. Point two, Jesus healed an enemy, right? Malchus was among those who had come to arrest him. He was one of the ones that Satan was moving to murder Jesus. In Luke 22, Christ points out their unfairness. He said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Malchus was one of the ones who owned that hour of darkness, one of the minions of darkness, and yet Christ's mercy reached out to him. That's the remarkable thing. And this should be an encouragement uh, to us that the very one who was going to handcuff Jesus and lead him as a lamb to the slaughter was the one who touched him with his infinite compassion and, and grace. Jesus did not harbor bitterness. Even on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not 
what they do. Now just think of what it took for Jesus to do this because he had just previously to this been praying hour after hour with deep cries and weeping and sweating these drops of blood over the anguish of realizing that shortly the Father was going to forsake him, turn his back on him, pour out his wrath upon him. He was going to experience the sin of all of his elect dumped upon him. He was going to be facing shortly incredible physical suffering, incredible uh, spiritual uh, suffering as well. And uh, it says that he cried out with strong cries. He sweated drops of blood. He knew that millions of demons from around the world were going to shortly be converging upon him during those three hours of darkness, trying to undo him, trying to get him not to be the Savior that he came to be. So he was preoccupied with a great deal. But he was not too preoccupied to think about that small pain that Malchus was experiencing. That just blows me away. I mean, it's such a small thing. It's just an ear wound, okay? Uh, and Christ is, has so much more going on in his life. But um, Malchus, despite the fact that he deserved far worse, Jesus thought of him and healed him. And that's the kind of Savior that you have. When you're tempted to give up on people because of their wicked rebellion against Christ and their hardness of heart, think of what Jesus did to this man. Don't be too quick to send your enemies to hell, right? When you're tempted to treat someone who has hurt you harshly, think of how Christ returned good for the evil that was given to him. On the other hand, if you think you are too evil to become a Christian, or you're a Christian who has sinned too greatly to be forgiven, think about what Christ did with this man. For many years, I had a hard time believing that I could be saved, thinking I had committed the unpardonable sin. I struggled and struggled with that, but the Lord finally showed me that my main problem was not that I thought that uh, I'd, you know, it was a bad sin that I'd committed, but my problem was I didn't realize how bad I really was. I had the mistaken notion you've got to be good enough to be forgiven. Okay? Anybody who struggles with forgiveness does not yet know the depths of his depravity. He needs a far greater preaching of the law before he's going to appreciate the gospel. And uh, I think this story here is something that can really, really help us. Um, all of us are utterly at the disposal of God's wrath or His mercy. And Christ's forgiveness is not based upon how good we are, but upon how good Jesus is. You know, His faithfulness, His grace. Apart from Christ, we are all enemies of God who crucify to ourselves the Son of God afresh and uh, make and openly despise Him with our sins. That's exactly what the Scripture says. But Christ came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. If you, you think you're righteous, you don't need Jesus. Actually, you need Jesus to show you that you're righteous and you're a sinner in the first place, right? But He came to call sinners to repentance, and for that we can thank and praise and adore Him. Ephesians says that all of us were enemies at some point in our lives. It may have been just at conception. At some point, we were enemies, all of us. 
So never give up on the enemies of the cross in this nation and never underestimate the power of God's grace to change them and his willingness to save even the worst of sinners. He came to turn enemies into friends. Third, he healed a slave. When verse 10 says that Peter struck the high priest's servant, the word for servant is literally a bond slave. And yet, even a slave was important to Jesus. Even the slave of his mortal enemy was important to Jesus. There is no one who was so insignificant that Jesus will overlook him. He came to call the base things of this world and the things which are despised. And I've had people think that they are despised. And I said, yeah, all of us really should have that perspective that we are the despised things uh, of this world. But they think, I'm worthless. I can't do anything. And why would God love me anyway? Well, think of that slave. Was a slave significant in the ancient world? Not that significant. It could accomplish something, and granted, this was a pretty important slave because he was the personal valet of Caiaphas, but apart from his relationship to Caiaphas, he really didn't amount to much of anything. And the Scripture says, apart from our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have a lot of significance. So many people try hard to gain a sense of significance by looking at how You've got good in you. You've got this. You've got the other thing. No, that self-esteem movement is going to let you down. It is Christ-esteem, not self-esteem, that is going to lift you up and to encourage you. We have esteem because of Christ. And once Malcolm, Malchus was saved, he became a man with a name in the Scripture, and even previous to this, uh, a man who was important enough for Jesus to heal his ear. How significant do you think the thieves on the cross were? You know, in the ancient world, probably not too significant, but to Jesus, one thief became so significant that he promised, today you will be with me in paradise. To me, he just blow me away. Because all of us are slaves. Slaves to Satan is what Christ said. Apart from his grace, slaves to Satan, to our flesh, and to the world system, and there is no escape from slavery apart from Jesus. He came to heal slaves. He came to free slaves from their misery. And if you're a slave to pornography, or to alcohol, or to pride, or to any other sin, you can rest assured that Christ cares about slaves, and he can provide for you. Fourth, Jesus healed an ear. Jesus didn't say, oh, it's just an ear. I've got more important things to think about today. No, he does not ignore small wounds. Matthew 18, verse 17, says that the reason he was willing to heal people was because on the cross, quote, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That's Matthew 18, verse 17. Is there healing? Is there healing in the atonement? You know, some Reformed people, as an overreaction against hyper-Pentecostalism, says, no, there's no healing in the atonement. Let me tell you something. You could not be resurrected on the final day if there was no healing in the atonement. Of course there's healing in the atonement. The question is, can we demand it now? No, we cannot. There's a timing, and 
our bodies will be resurrected. But the cool thing is that God gives us down payments in the forms of healing even now because healing is in the atonement and He cares about our bodies. Yes, He cares about our souls and He heals them, but He cares about our bodies as well and He cares about the tiniest aches and pains that you may have. And so I would encourage you, cast your cares upon the Lord. Glory in the fact that our God heals. He loves to heal His people. So look to Him for physical healing before you take any medicine. Too many people only look to the Lord after every medical attempt has failed. That's exactly backwards. Asa was cursed by God because he sought physicians instead of seeking the Lord. So seek for healing from the Lord before you take medicine. Seek for healing from the Lord while you take medicine and glory in the Lord if that medicine uh, helps you. My, my father-in-law was a medical doctor and I'm, I, I probably won't remember exactly how his sign went, but on the sign it says, I treat, God heals. Okay? So even using doctors... God is the one that we need to be trusting, using their hands and their skills to work in our lives. So don't secularize any part of life. Your body needs to be offered up to the Lord as a living sacrifice. But anyway, the healing of His ear, to me that's so, so encouraging. Fifth, Christ healed Malchus, knowing full well the pain that he would soon suffer at the hands of Malchus's masters. Master. Verse 4 says, Jesus... Therefore, knowing all that would come upon him. Now, that's the significant phrase. Knowing all that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? Now, if you were in a similar situation, knowing the kind of abuse that you are going to be receiving in the future, would you take the time to heal one of those people? And this, this just astonishes me. This is the heart and the character of God. All of us, apart from God's grace, would crucify the Son. And if you don't believe that, read Hebrews sometime, which says that when we Christians willfully sin, we are, quote, we, they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open chain. Now just think of it this way. He continues to forgive us, knowing full well that we will sin against Him again in the future. This blows your mind. He knows every one of your future sins, and yet He continues to be gracious to you right now. No wonder He didn't just say forgive seven times, or seven times seven, or seventy times seven. He doesn't keep count. His forgiveness is full and free. Now, when we have to do that, we realize, I can't do that. I can't do that in myself. But that's why even for forgiveness, we need to ask for God's supernatural forgiveness to forgive through us. For everything in life, we really need His grace. Sixth, and perhaps the most remarkable to me, was that Jesus healed Malchus when Jesus had the power to destroy all these men. It's not like he didn't have options. Take a look at verse 6. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There was something about Christ that made them afraid. I think that they saw a glimpse of his glory. They, they fell back onto the ground. They were frightened. 
Okay, throughout the scene, Jesus is in control, not them. When Peter drew his sword, Matthew records these words from Christ to Peter. You think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Christ could have called 12 legions of angels to wipe these men out, and he did not. Uh, he could have destroyed them himself. He was the Son of God, but he did not. And to me, this speaks of the unbelievable self-control that he experienced holding those 12 legions back. And I'm sure those legions of angels, they got swords in their hands, and they're just itching to wipe these guys out. Just give us the word, Lord. We'll, we'll, we'll clean this whole mess out, the whole nasty, dark mess of people. They would have loved to have defended their Lord, but he holds them back. You know, we have a world filled with men with as much evil in their hearts as Marcus and this crowd, and the fact that he does not wipe them out is not a sign of his lack of power, but a sign of his patience. When we pray for our city, we are going to the one who had the, that patience back then. And rather than getting frustrated at God's patience with America, we should praise Him. It is the same patience that means you and I are still alive today because I guarantee you every one of us deserves to be taken out. Every one of us. And then finally, Jesus healed a man during the great hour of darkness that had come upon the world. Luke 22, verse 53 says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, if Jesus could heal during the world's worst hours of darkness, if he could forgive and save the thief on the cross who had just moments before been ridiculing him just like the other uh, one did, mocking him, blaspheming him, if he could take the time to care about his mother and provide for his mother when he's going through such anguish, that's during the darkest hour of this world, I think you can trust Him to provide for you and care for you and love you through the dark hours that you are facing as well. This healing of Malchus to me shows how selfless Christ's love was, and it also shows to me that it really doesn't matter how dark the world is. Christ is the light of the world. He can handle the darkness. It doesn't matter what conspiracies may be happening in America. Jesus was handling the conspiracy that happened back then. He continues to handle the conspiracies that we face today. It doesn't matter how resistant to the gospel people may be and how far from the witness of the gospel they may be, Christ knows how to bring a silent but powerful witness of an ear of Malchus. Praise God that he is not without witness and trust him for that fact as you go out as ambassadors in this coming week. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We glory in your word and your grace and your patience and your love. We know that you are a God of wrath, but you're also a God of love and forgiveness. And we come to you asking you to forgive us for those times where we have doubted you, where we have doubted your grace, your willingness to forgive us, and asking you to forgive us for those times where we have not reflected that. We want to walk in your Spirit so that we can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we want uh, to walk 
in Christ so that He can live His life through us. We want more and more to reflect, faintly perhaps, but still to reflect as the moon reflects the sun, to reflect a bit of this supernatural character that was seen in Jesus during this healing of the ear of Malchus. Father, transform us, strengthen us, Send us out renewed in this week with encouragement and with a renewed zeal to be true ambassadors for you, that we ourselves would be an ear of Malchus, that we ourselves would shine forth the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, showing transformed lives. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.